Well, beloved, if we want to be faithful and joyful Christians, it's absolutely critical for us that we understand the change that has been brought about by Jesus Christ. It's critical that we understand that salvation is not something that has just kind of always been the case in the world, always been offered by God, and Jesus is just some new iteration of something that's always happened. No, beloved, we have to see that Jesus truly is utterly unique. And that before Jesus came, there was no hope. We were without God in this world. And now that Jesus has come, the floodgates of salvation, of knowing God, have been opened wide, and there is a new day. As we just saw in Isaiah, a new thing has come, and so we can rejoice, we can celebrate, and we have news to proclaim. We have a new thing that happened that we can go and we can tell others about. And this is truly what the book of Isaiah itself revolves around. The first half of the book of Isaiah, as we have seen, is largely a book of judgment. Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 is all about God's judgment upon his people and judgment upon the nations because they have not been obedient to God. Even though God was kind to them and gave them his law and led them in a multitude of ways, they still did not obey the Lord. And so God said through the prophet Isaiah and through many other prophets that he is going to come, he is going to judge his people, he is going to take them away into captivity to Assyria, to Babylon, and his people are going to be no more. We came to this hinge point in Isaiah when we came to Isaiah chapter 36. And Isaiah chapters 36 to 39 describe this incredible narrative where the armies of Assyria came and surrounded Jerusalem. And the people in Jerusalem thought then, surely this is God's judgment. Surely we are all going to die. But there was a faithful king, King Hezekiah, who prayed to the Lord, and the Lord worked a miraculous deliverance for the people of Jerusalem. They had a fresh lease on life. They could serve a new day. But by the end of chapter 39, we still get these discouraging words of judgment because King Hezekiah, this faithful king who prayed and who trusted the Lord, No sooner had God saved them than he lets in these envoys from Babylon and he shows them everything that's inside Jerusalem, all the wealth that Jerusalem has. And so God says to Hezekiah once again, because you've done this, because you've decided to boast about all your wealth to this nation of Babylon, the nation of Babylon is going to come and they are going to take you away into captivity. And so we realize at the end of chapter 39 that Israel is still doomed. It still seems like there is no hope in Israel. And beloved, if there is no hope in Israel, that means that there is no hope anywhere on the earth. Because Israel was God's chosen people. Israel was the people whom God chose to spoke, whom he chose to lead. And so if God was not going to be with Israel, God was not going to be with anyone at all. Again, the world would simply be awash in judgment. You can think back to the days of Noah when God decided to destroy the whole earth with the flood. This is the situation if God abandons Israel. If he abandons the redemptive purpose, the good purpose that he had for the earth that he was trying to bring about through Israel. And so this brings about a big transition in the book of Isaiah 
in chapter 40. Chapter 40 begins with these new words that you wouldn't have expected to hear anywhere before in the book of Isaiah. It begins with the words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. This is just a a mind-blowing statement. That Israel, who's been so unfaithful, whom God redeemed, and yet who then then immediately fell back into their old ways, that God would nevertheless speak to this city, speak to this Jerusalem, and say, your warfare is ended, your iniquity is pardoned. In other words, in Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet Isaiah begins to proclaim the gospel. He begins to proclaim the good news that God is doing a new thing in history, that there is a way of rescue that nobody had ever heard about ever before, that God himself has planned and designed, and that God himself will accomplish. That God will not leave us in our sins, but that he will come and pardon us. Beloved, just in case you don't realize how big this news is, understand that this is the biggest news that could ever flash across any screen. This is the biggest news that could ever hit any newspaper in the whole history of the world. Beloved, all of the evil in the human world is the result of our sin. All the brokenness in the world is the result of God's punishing and restraining human sin. In other words, the only reason why anything is wrong on earth today is because of sin. Without sin, everything on earth would be great. Every natural disaster would be gone. Every school shooting would be gone. Every war would be ended. Every physical impairment would be gone. Every betrayal would be gone. Everything that is wrong with this world would be ended if sin itself were ended. And so when Isaiah makes this proclamation that there is a new day, a day of comfort for people, a day where iniquities will be pardoned, he is saying that everything that is wrong with the world will be made right. This is what Isaiah begins to proclaim in chapter 40. Again, just look at that very first verse of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort. We live in a world of sorrows, and God is promising comfort. Her warfare is ended. We live in a world full of strife and arguments and disasters. And he's saying that all warfare, all fighting will come to an end. And then her iniquity is pardoned. And so whatever role we ourselves have played and telling lies or in advancing hatred or advancing strife, that all of these wrongs will be forgiven, that a new day is dawning. So Isaiah is promising good, even great news. In fact, if you're like me, you've probably wondered why God makes so much of his Bible so hard to understand. I just read through so much of the book of Isaiah, and so much of it seems so lofty, so mysterious. Why all this difficult language? Well, I think in large part, the the reason is this, is that Isaiah is simply trying to wrap his arms around a picture so glorious, a news so great, that human words can scarcely contain them. 
That this gospel message that Isaiah wants to proclaim cannot be proclaimed in any simple sentence, any simple language. No, it takes all the artfulness of language that Isaiah can possibly master, all the imagery he can bring forth to try and show us what a wonderful thing God is doing. And even then, it falls far short of the reality of what God is doing. As 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love them. Beloved, we cannot even imagine the good things that God is doing, the good things that he is bringing about. This is the good news that Isaiah is proclaiming. And so, with this foundation being laid, again, from Isaiah 1 to 39, talking about the judgment, and then where we've been from Isaiah 40 to 48, this promise of a a good thing that's about to come about, we are nevertheless left with this enormous question, how on earth will God do this? How can God possibly take this world that we are in, that is so messed up beyond imagination, that is so full of disaster, that is so full of brokenness, that is so full of sin, and how is he going to make it like that world that he is promising? Where it will be free from all those things, where there will be comfort, where there will be pardon from iniquity, where there will be all these good things. How is God going to bring this good news about? I mean, does God just suddenly change his mind about our sin all of a sudden? You know, decide, well, it's, it's not so bad. Or he just decides he doesn't like war anymore, and so he's just going to stop wars from happening. Of course, those things are not likely at all. God is faithful. He does not change. We just heard about that last week. He's not just going to change his mind about the iniquity of sin. And even if he did, it wouldn't make sin any less terrible, any less devastating to the human race. Well, Isaiah turns back in his Bible, actually, to begin answering this question. And that's what's kind of been happening from Isaiah 40 to 48. Part of his answer is Isaiah simply reminding us of something that God has already said. And what God has already said is that God intended his people, Israel, to be a people to bring his blessing to the ends of the earth. And so Isaiah reminds us of how this is God's plan, that God will use his people, Israel, this this nation, this Jewish people that he has chosen, and he will use them in order to repair this broken world, in order to eliminate sin from the world. And so we read in Isaiah 41, this is verses 8 to 10, it says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You hear all that language about God saying, I am with you, my people, in order for you to bring about my purposes on the earth, in order to do what I have called you to do. And the fact that he 
calls his people Israel, and then Jacob, and then Abraham, all these names of the patriarchs, it's like he's reminding them of all these promises that he has made. Even that promise that he made to Abraham, that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He is saying, you are still my people. My strength is still with you to accomplish all of these good things that I have purposed. That through them, God still wants to peel back this destructiveness of sin. And again, this is not a a new idea, a new thing that Isaiah is proclaiming. We see this talked about in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Just to give you one example, here's the words of Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. It says, Keep my laws and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all the laws that I have set before you today? So Israel was supposed to be this set-apart nation living under this unique set of laws so that all the nations around them could see the the goodness of the laws of Israel, the, the goodness of all the things that were happening in Israel, and they could say, wow, these people must have a really great God to have such a good law, to have so much righteousness, so much justice existing in this nation of Israel. And so in this way, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. Israel was, as Isaiah 41 says, Israel was God's servant. God's servant to bring about all of his redemptive purposes. They are God's servant to accomplish the salvation of of the earth, God called out Israel as a nation all the way back, beginning with Abraham, to bring about this blessing to the world, to bring about the end of the reign of sin and death, and to bring about a world of perfect flourishing like God originally designed. But Isaiah has a a twist on this truth. And again, this is something surprising to us as we read through Isaiah. Because again, so far, we would have expected, okay, God says he's not abandoned his people. We know God has given all these promises to these people. Surely the people of Israel are going to be the people to carry out God's saving purposes. Well, we encounter the first surprise when we come to Isaiah chapter 42. We read a little bit of it this morning. Isaiah 42, verses 18 to 25. It says, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? So hear what he's saying. Isaiah has just said that Israel is God's servant. Israel is going to bring about God's purposes. But now, in Isaiah 42, we're reading that God's servant is blind and deaf. In other words, they are not able to bring about God's purposes. Let me carry on in Isaiah 42, verse 20. He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. 
But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set, it set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take heart. In other words, this servant that God had such glorious purposes for, this nation that was supposed to be a light to all other nations by the beauty of its law, has now become plunder and has become a laughingstock. And why did they become plunder and a laughingstock? Because they offended God. And because God brought his judgment upon the people. In Isaiah 41, he said that he would strengthen his servant Israel. But here, he says that he has judged his servant Israel. In Isaiah 40, he told Jerusalem that your warfare has ended, but here he says he brought warfare upon them. In other words, what Isaiah is saying in 42 is that the old plan, the plan of Israel being God's servant to bring God's peace and righteousness to the world is not going to happen. This is an enormous, earth-shaking thing for the people of Israel to hear. That all of these promises that have been made to this nation of Israel are all of a sudden God is telling them that you are not able to do it. You cannot accomplish what I have called you to accomplish. And so we come to Isaiah 49 and we are left basically right where we started. How, God, are you going to bring about this glorious plan that you have? How are you going to bring about your salvation? All throughout Isaiah, we've seen, God, that you have so much saving power. We know that you are able to save. But now we see that your people have abandoned you and your judgment has fallen upon them. Even your, your chosen vessel, the nation of Israel, has failed. And if Israel has failed, who had every advantage possible, how likely is anyone else to succeed? Again, we almost feel like we're left back at Isaiah 39. Just no hope. Everyone is under judgment, even God's people. And so, Isaiah chapter 49 interrupts this despair that we have. And it begins to tell us about how God truly will accomplish his saving purpose. Here we really learn for the first time about God's true servant, that his true agent of fulfilling all of his saving purposes of rescuing the world is not the nation of Israel, but is actually someone else. Again, this is staggering news in light of all that we've read about in the Bible up until now, about all that the people of Israel believed. How could it not be the nation of Israel? How could it be someone else? 
And yet Isaiah 49 clearly tells us that God is calling someone else. If you look at Isaiah 49, verse 5, it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. So notice that word again, to be his servant. God is still talking about his servant. Who is going to accomplish his redemption? But then it says, To be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So this servant is actually someone who will save Israel. So it cannot be Israel. It's someone who is going to draw Israel back to God. Remember, Jacob is just another word for Israel. In fact, we know that it can't even be some faithful remnant or faithful people within Israel because we read in verse 6, it says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So even the preserved of Israel, even this smaller number of faithful people in Israel cannot be God's servant. It's someone else who is helping these people, who is saving these people, who is bringing about all of God's purposes. And yet we do still know that this individual is a faithful Israelite, is a Jew. We read in verse 3 of Isaiah 49, it says, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And so there's this mind-bending work going on as we see that Israel is God's servant, but this Israel, who is God's servant, is also going to rescue Israel and is going to rescue the remnant of Israel. Again, it's almost like Isaiah is presenting us with a riddle that who is this servant? Who could this be that will bring about all of God's saving purposes, that will rescue the world, that will rescue sinners for God? We also know from Isaiah 49 that this mission that the servant has really is the same mission that the nation of Israel had. Again, look at verse 6. It says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So clearly this is someone even greater than Israel because God says it is too light a thing that you should only rescue Israel. Rather, this servant is so great that he must be a light to the very ends of the earth. And again, this is what Israel itself was called to, to be a light to the whole world, to show the whole world how good God is, to draw the world to Yahweh God. And now we're being told that this new servant, this servant that's going to rescue Israel, is also going to be this light for the nations, that God's salvation will reach the end of the earth. Again, we are reminded of God's promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God is restoring and rejuvenating this promise that he made so long ago. We also see more similarities between this servant and the nation of Israel. Namely, we see that this servant 
will bring about a covenant between God and man, just like God made a covenant, a relational promise between himself and the nation of Israel. If you look in Isaiah 49, verse 8, it says, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. And so God is giving this rescuer, this servant, this champion as a covenant to the peoples. He is restoring the relationship between God and man. This servant will also be someone who faithfully proclaims God's word. We see in Isaiah 49, verse 2, it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. And so he will be someone who proclaims the word of God. And as he proclaims the word of God and brings, out a, brings about a covenant with God, he is being this light to the nations. He is bringing God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And so again, we see so much continuity between everything that's come before in the Old Testament and this new promise of a new servant that is coming. And yet we do see one huge difference. The huge difference is that this servant that God will send will succeed, whereas Israel surely failed. If you'll turn your eyes to Isaiah 49, verses 9 to 11, this is what this new servant will accomplish. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Again, this incredible figurative language, but what is being spoken of in this figurative language but perfect restoration, perfect life, repair of all that is broken. We hear about prisoners set free, the thirsty giving, given water, those who are being scorched by the sun given shade, all the mountains that are difficult to travel become a road, and all the highways that are normally dangerous places become lifted up so that they are now safe. In other words, any type of brokenness that you see on the earth, any type of sin that you see on the earth is going to be done away with by this servant. This whole idea is again summed up in verse 3 of Isaiah 49. It says, He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And so this servant is going to bring glory to God by bringing such peace, such harmony on the earth, that again, just as Israel was to do of old, everyone may look to the servant and may look to the people of the servant and say, what a glorious God this is. This servant will finally and fully bring glory to God. 
And so this servant will surely succeed where Israel continually failed. And yet there's one more mystery that I want to draw your attention to in this passage. And that is that this servant will bring about this redemption, bring about this restoration in a very surprising way. Whereas Israel was a kingdom, meaning it had a king, it had a government, it had an army, and therefore it it worked in all the normal ways of the world, we see something very different for this new servant that is being sent, for this servant that's coming in place of Israel. We see that he is going to be despised and abhorred. And so if you look in verse 7 of chapter 49, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. This is not someone who will reign as king. This is someone who will be a servant of rulers. And yet, look at the very next lines. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So even though this servant whom God is sending, this man, will be despised and abhorred, nevertheless, kings will come to him and bow down, will prostrate themselves before him. He will be one who does not overcome, who does not bring about God's salvation by might and by power. Rather, he will be someone who brings about God's salvation by humbly trusting the Lord. The very last line in verse 5 says, God has become my strength. So God is his strength, not armies. Not great powers, not earthly means, but God himself. In verse 8, it says, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. So God is answering him. God is helping him. It says, I will keep you. So God himself is protecting him in this mysterious way. And he is going to trust God in the midst of all this weakness. In verse 4, again, these mysterious words, we read, but I said, I have labored in vain. This is the servant speaking, the servant who is doing all these amazing things. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. In other words, he will look like a failure. He will look like he has not accomplished anything, and yet, even though that is how it will outwardly appear, he will nevertheless trust in God. Beloved, there's no way that the people of Israel could have seen exactly how God would fulfill all these words. And there's no way that I myself, if I did not have the benefit of the New Testament, could possibly figure out what all these things mean. But beloved, in the New Testament, we see a picture of the servant so glorious that so 
perfectly matches this prophecy of Isaiah chapter 49 that we can only revel in and praise the mercy of God for this wonderful plan that he has portrayed. For what could look more like a failure, beloved, than someone who claims to be a savior, someone who claims to be bringing about good purposes on the earth, dying as a criminal upon a cross? You see, at the end of Jesus' life, he did not look like the chosen vessel of God's salvation. He did not look like the servant who was going to fulfill all the promises to Abraham, to David, all the promises made to Israel over these many generations. And yet, beloved, this is exactly who he is. He is bringing about this glorious new day of salvation where all sins will be forgiven, where all wrongs in the world will be made right, And he is not doing it by might or by strength, but he is doing it as a servant, as a slave, by dying upon a cross. And beloved, the whole reason why he had to do that, why he had to die upon a cross, is because we here were part of the problem. Because every human on earth was part of the problem, because there is no way For there to be some segmented part of humanity that was all perfect, that was all good, that could then be used as God's agents. No, if one person was going to be pure, then the Son of God had to die to take the sins of the world upon himself. And so we can have confidence that if Jesus indeed died, that if his blood was indeed shed, then our iniquity truly is now pardoned that we truly have nothing left to fear from the wrath of God, that God could never in the future say to us again what he said to Israel, that I am bringing judgment upon you because you did not walk in my ways, because that judgment has now already been brought upon his servant, Jesus Christ. So that now for us, beloved, there is only hope. There is only gospel progress. There is only joy. There is only salvation to be offered, not by any works that we can perform, but by the work of this glorious servant whom God sent. But beloved, if God is accomplishing this glorious salvation through Jesus Christ, and if we are now found in him, if we are covered by his blood, That means that we get to participate in this grand mission that Jesus Christ himself began. In this mission of bringing peace to this world. In this mission of bringing love where there was previously hatred. And we only do this, beloved, by proclaiming King Jesus. By proclaiming him as this great savior, as this great servant whom God sent to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. And beloved, the tip of the spear, the biggest way that we can proclaim this glory of God to the nations is spoken for us in verse 13 of Isaiah 49. It is the perfect response to this great salvation that Jesus has won. 
It says, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Bring forth, o, break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Beloved, as we come together on mornings like this and as we sing our praises to the Lord, as we exalt in him, we are proclaiming to this earth that a new day has dawned, that a new servant has come, that one has come who truly will succeed and bring about all the beautiful purposes of God. And this is why in verse 13, it says that both the heavens and the earth will break forth in singing because no longer will heaven and earth be divided, but heaven and earth are becoming one by the work of Jesus Christ. Again, all that is wrong is being made right, and this is all thanks to King Jesus. And so we come together and we praise him, and we look across the world today at the advancement of God's church, saying that God is truly doing a new work, that he is doing glorious things, And we expect for God's gospel to continue to progress until all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. And so with that in mind, let's pray together now, beloved. I'm going to open us up in prayer along these themes, but then I just invite you, as I've just proclaimed, to pray for the many needs of this world around us because we know that through Jesus Christ, God is bringing about salvation in every way. And so let's pray to that end now. Heavenly Father, we indeed thank you for sending this glorious servant, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that you sent him in a way that was so mysterious to us, that's so confusing to us, who wins a victory by dying in the battle. And yet, Lord, this is what you have chosen to do through your son, Jesus. And so we praise you for your bottomless wisdom, Lord, that you have orchestrated this this plan that is so far better than any plan that any of us human beings could ever have devised and that you are working this great salvation through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that in our own day here in the city of Pittsburgh and even beyond that you will continue to advance the salvation of Jesus Christ Would you make us vessels of your mercy underneath King Jesus as we receive mercy from him? And Lord, in this way, we pray that your salvation would come to the ends of the earth. Would you hear our prayers on behalf of this world now?